Amen. All right, let's get in the word then. Uh, this evening is November 9th, 2011. Our message is a Hebrew word tonight. It's a title called Retzev, R-E-T-Z-E-V, Retzev. As we start to get into this word, Retzev, I'll tell you more about it. But turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. You will be in the 15th chapter. Our church has experienced revival lately. And we've seen more than 20 people in a three-week period saved or spirit-filled or both. Really neat things that are happening. We're getting reports of healing testimonies, financial testimonies, victory over sin testimonies. These are good things. Anytime there is a... Uh, Moving forward of God's kingdom, there is resistance from the enemy. So I thought it would be fitting tonight to talk to you a little bit about how to deal with resistance. Are you in Corinthians 15? Yes. Yeah. Let us start in the 55th verse. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The imagery here is that you are standing and something is pushing against you and you're being told to stand firm. Those of you that have participated in athletics before might know exactly what it is like to square off with somebody who wants to move you. And your job is to hold a certain plot of ground. The kingdom uses this very same analogy. In fact, when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian church, he speaks of the preparation of the gospel that works a little bit like cleats on your feet, causes you to be able to dig in and take your stand. And having done everything to stand, he said, stand. Friends, how do you know that you've done everything to stand? That has to come at those moments where you feel like you would fall if something wasn't holding you up. There are times in the gospel life, there are times in the kingdom life where the resistance is strong enough you would feel as if you would be pushed over, crushed down, oppressed, broken, whatever it might be, if there were not something reaching down inside of you causing you to stand. All of human history is really this story. We see one man come up called the Son of God. This was Adam to start with. And he fell to the pressure of the enemy. We see a series over the next 4,000 years of men stand up and do things for the Lord. But when enough pressure was put upon them, they always fell. So the Lord our God reached down into a human being that he specially created in the womb of Mary. And he put his hand in humanity. And this man could not be pushed down. He was immovable. He was unshakable. He is the image of the invisible God. He is our Messiah. He is our standard by which we march now. This is how that works, but there's only ever been one like that, and there's only ever one way that you can take your stand, and that is with Him inside of you. In Genesis 1.28, you don't have to turn there. I've quoted that enough in this church that you ought to be able to do it from memory, but just in case you can't, it says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the air and every living creature that moves along the ground. Earlier when Paul said that we should stand and let nothing move you. Move you from what? God has given you a heavenly purpose. There is not a man or a woman in this room that was not born with a calling. And the moment that you were put in the Lamb's book of life as we discussed in that last message about the books open, there were deeds laid out for you to do. Ephesians 2 teaches us that He prepared those works in advance for you to do. You are His workmanship created for that purpose. The King of the universe is reaching down into us and saying, Take your stand because I have work for you to do. The work that you have to do is not all that different than the first man or woman that were on the planet. The first man and woman that were on the planet were told things like, you will rule, you will fill the earth, you will subdue it. When we think about this, we fill the earth with God's multiplied presence. You know, it's an amazing thing. God said, let us make man in our image. These are plural words, but he made something. What did he make? A singular man. 
in some way, when you look at Cody, even though he just looks like a handsome 20-something-year-old man, right? So nice he'd give you the hair off of his own back. <laughs> we are looking at something that the Bible declares is an image of God. Not a perfect image. Jesus is the perfect image. But nevertheless, he is patterned in some way after God. This means that when Cody falls in love with the woman that God has called him to, and they join each other as two halves of one calling, and they have little Cody's, we have multiplied the image of God on the planet. Somehow or another, man's job has always involved multiplying God's image, God's presence, God's power upon the earth. And so he was told this also, you will rule. Well, when someone rules, this is called a kingdom. We don't rule in our own authority, we rule in his. He has given us his word and told us where our authority begins and ends. When we live inside of it, when we act inside of that authority, looking like God, now acting like God, this is how Jesus could say the kingdom of God is near you because it was inside of him. It's how he could say the kingdom of God is upon you or at hand. The idea in Hebrew was that it was about to envelop you because someone who was the image of God acting in the authority of God was in their presence. And so it was as if the very gates of the kingdom were upon them. And friends, we still carry that same task. There was one other thing that man was told in Genesis 1.28. He said, subdue the earth. Subdue implies resistance. If I had to subdue Michael, I would ask Matthew for help. If I had to subdue Natalie, I might not need the help. But no matter what happens, subdue involves resistance. Anybody here ever seen cops? You might not know how many it's going to take to subdue the criminal, but you know how many they're going to use. It's all of them, right? Sticks, tasers, doesn't matter. Man's job was to subdue the earth, not just to multiply God's presence, not just to extend his kingdom, but the extending of his kingdom would involve something resisting him that was already evil here. Given that, there's been resistance from the beginning. It's not new in your life and certainly not new this week. It feels like this when you get born again. Doesn't it feel like all hell has broken loose? You go from ecstasy in his presence, just a wonderful spiritual high, to taking out the garbage the next day in kids of Edgar House or whatever has happened to you. And you wonder how could something so glorious also coincide with something so terrible. Jesus said kingdom would rise against kingdom, nation against nation. In the end, there is a clash of heavenly forces. There's no question that there's a clash. The question is where will you stand if you stand at all? Now men like to consider combat. The fastest way to get a bunch of guys together in this next few weeks with Veterans Day and all of those things about to happen would be to have a band of brothers ceremony, right? All we need to do is put John Wayne on TV and suddenly there'll be, oh, I found out John Wayne's a generational thing. All we have to do is put Clint Eastwood or somebody on TV and suddenly guys are drawn to that. In fact, in every culture, we have methods of combat. When you think of Chinese, what is a method of combat? We've got Kung Fu, right? Bruce Lee with his whining, squealing self. When you think of uh, Korea, you might have karate, right? When you think of Japan, you might think of judo. When you think of the French, you really can't think of a method of combat. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> My favorite of all of the methods of combat, when you get down to it, because I'm such a fan of Israel, is something that the IDF does. The IDF has a program that they call Krav Maga. This is not a very complicated thing. Krav Maga quite simply is Hebrew for combat contact. Is that to the point? It's like a man that drives a truck that says Dodge Ram. What is he really trying to tell you, right? The, everything is in the name. Krav Maga means combat contact. The theory behind this is that it assumes no quarter. While you might be in a karate tournament and you get points for a kick to a certain area or points for somebody being taken down in a judo tournament, Krav Maga has no tournament because they have no dojo. It takes place on a street or in an urban setting. It emphasizes real life scenario. You will not see Jean-Claude Van Damme doing beautiful little 
dainty kicks. That does not occur because it, it doesn't work. Soldiers don't do this on a battlefield. Not only this, it utilizes things that are found in combat areas, like fog, loud noises, distractions, obstacles. This is a part of the training. So is multiple opponents. Now, before I get to all of those things, I'm just curious, in the kingdom, do we ever experience the fog of war? Yeah. Do we ever experience distraction? Do we ever experience obstacles called excuses? Yeah. yeah. Jesus said, go into all the world, and we say, you know, it's just not my calling, right? There is always distraction, fog, and obstacles. Krav Maga utilizes these real-life scenarios to train people. But the most basic tenet of Krav Maga is called Retzev. And it means continuous fighting motion. Or another way to translate that is always be fighting. Right? There is never a time to coast. There's never a time to stop. Never a time to catch your breath. Because it recognizes that if you are a Jew in Israel utilizing Krav Maga, it is because there is more than one person in an urban setting that wants to take your life from you. What would happen to the Christian world if we took this kind of attitude? If we realized that there was a thief that wanted to steal from us, he wanted to kill us, he wanted to destroy us, and if you rest, he gains a foothold. That our job is always pushing forward, always recognizing the moment. Was there anything in the Word, any scripture that comes to mind that mentions always, continually, these kind of things? Doesn't 1 Thessalonians 5.16 say, be joyful always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is Retzev, friends. This is what it looks like on the Christian combat field. It means that there is never a day that you take off and decide, today I'm going to indulge my desire to be in pity. You know, when you preach a message like this, it is usually born out of a struggle in your life. Today I was easily frustrated. I had difficulty maintaining joy. You know when it all begins to break, though? When you get into the presence of God, which lets you know circumstance was never really your problem, was it? It was simply your proximity or distance from the Lord. See, we don't really have any problems when we stand next to Him. Have you ever read Psalm 91? He who abides in the shadow of the Almighty shall dwell in the shelter. I got that backwards. He who dwells in the shelter of the Almighty shall abide in his shadow. There is a certain blessing that comes from being close to him. It's security. It is protection. It's joy in his presence. Uh, Philippians 1.27, you can turn there. Tell me when you're there. Two of you are there. The rest of you boycotting? There. Steve loves you so much he answered for five of you. <laughs> Philippians 1.27 Whatever happens, conduct yourselves. Wait, wait. Whatever happens? Lord, but what if... Or what if somebody stole my truck that day? Lord, what if every tool I own just drove off with some crackhead? Lord, what if my favorite Bible just was a part of a smash and grab? Lord, what if the very first musical instrument our church ever bought was stolen? Doesn't the word say whatever? But we said, Lord, there was fog. Lord, there were noises. Lord, there, there were multiple opponents. I can't catch my breath. And he says to you, Always, always, continually be moving, fighting. The kingdom never rests, friends. It is always moving forward, always expanding. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. Here's that with that standing firm. It's almost as if there's an enemy always trying to knock you down. Gabe, come up here. He's my son. I can use him for a sermon example. Gabe is a scrappy kid. I mean, there's just no question about that. If you've ever spent any time with him, I'm, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> Gabe, you want to fight? What happens to me if Gabe challenges me to a fight? He might. Can you imagine how demoralizing it is, though? Gabe says, hey, I'm going to fight with you. What do I do? I go, <laughs> how you feel, Gabe? <laughs> Did you know that Psalm 37 says God laughs at the wicked? The second, you can sit down. The second psalm says that the one enthroned laughs at the nations who have tried to kick off their fetters and march against him. There is no serious threat to God. How can there be serious threat to you if you're in him? He laughs at his enemies. How intimidating is this? They do their best. They can even kill his saints. And what does he do? He uses it to grease the wheels of revival. There is nothing that the enemy can do to stop the plan of God. There is only one thing that stops the plan of God. And that's you. We're the only thing in all of the heavens and all of the earth that has the audacity to look at God. The sun obeys him. The birds obey him. Gravity obeys him. But we can say, no, I feel like being depressed today. We can do whatever we want because he gave us that right. He made us in his image. What power that is. Your free will is about the most powerful thing in the universe when you come right down to it. Imagine what it is when it is truly placed in his hands. Friends, that's what lordship really is. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. Fog, noises, obstacles. We don't experience any of those. It's our best life now, right? Makes you wonder what world those people are living in, doesn't it? Come on. Apparently there every day is Friday, huh? like fairy tale. The problem with that is when it meets the litmus test of life, when it encounters multiple opponents, when it is no longer Jean-Claude Van Damme type choreographed moves, where does it leave the people? See, if you've been told God wants you happy, God wants you wealthy, God wants you prosperous. God is ultimately about you being satisfied. If that's the selfish gospel you bought into, what do you do when somebody runs over your firstborn child? Your whole Christian walk falls apart, doesn't it? Because God would never let something like that happen, except He does. He does, and He gains glory through what we suffer in His name and overcome. And he always has. So we invent clever little theological schemes that say things like, would God beat his bride? You know, funny question for a God who killed his son. You know, these are ridiculous scenarios that all have worked to alleviate the Christian body from combat, which ultimately is what you were built for. Are you in Exodus 13? <clears throat> Did I not tell you? I'm sorry. I'm not in Exodus 13. I'm trying to get there. I'm there now. In Exodus 13, let us pick up in the 17th verse. When Pharaoh let the people go, what are we talking about here? We're talking about Israel has been a slave in Egypt for 400 years. And Moses called the nation of Israel out of Egypt. To a people who were not a people, he said, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. A royal nation. So what were they before? They were a family of slaves. But they became a nation in this moment. Did you know that the Bible says, out of Egypt I called my son? Matthew quotes it about Jesus, but it was actually originally about the nation of Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. God adopted Israel. Now what I want you to hear is on the day that he adopted them, before they have even been given his word, before they have entered into a covenant where they said, everything you have commanded us, we will do. They told the same lies we did. But they meant it. They tried. Right? Church is full of hypocrites. The world is full of hypocrites. We're just trying to do something about it, friends. On the day that they were adopted, before they had even been given the word, I want you to hear how they left Egypt. 
How many of you think spiritual warfare is for the mature? I mean, maybe you should go get a master's in uh, theology. That'll help you, right? No, I'll, we'll go one higher. Get you a master's in divinity. Mm. Are you feeling it, blow? <laughs> go get a funny hat or color. See if that helps. Who is spiritual warfare for? When Pharaoh let the people of God, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, how? Armed for battle. On the day they were born as a nation, before they had even been given God's word, they were what? Armed for battle. But they were not being led into war, were they? There was a short way to get there. But that short way would encounter fierce fighting. And the gracious commander that the Lord is said, I'm going to take you the long way around. This is not a one-time John Wayne, Chuck Norris battle. This is going to be a battle of attrition. Your enemy will try to wear on you, but I armed you for it before you ever faced them. If you think spiritual warfare is for the mature friends, you're wrong. If you think it's for that one great day where you're dealing with a little girl whose head spins around and she pits up, spits out pea soup, you're wrong. Spiritual warfare is for every Christian every day. And the battle, very often, is contained inside you with your flesh. Sometimes the biggest, most nasty demonic force you will ever face is the one that's telling you don't get out of bed and don't go to church. Don't be nice to that person. You have a right to be exactly how you want to be today. Sometimes that's a whole lot more dangerous than if the devil showed up right there with a Brooklyn accent and a pitchfork. You know why? Because it's the one that's beating most of the church most of the time. Yeah. But we were armed for battle the day we were adopted as God's sons. And he is taking us along the road that allows us to encounter appropriate resistance at the appropriate time. When you get appropriate resistance at the appropriate time, you know what that is? That's strength training. Right? You go drop 400 pounds on Gabriel, he's going to collapse. You give him 100 pounds and have him lifted eight times, and next week he'll be able to do 103. And in a month from now, he'll be able to do 120. That is strength training because it's resistance at the appropriate time. Come on. Our king has not let you encounter more resistance than is appropriate for this time. We need to be careful not to whine about what we're facing. It was for our benefit. It's for our edification. It's for our strengthening, for our growing. What would happen to Arnold? Hey, what did happen to Arnold Schwarzenegger when he quit lifting all those weights? He got fat, didn't he? The same thing happens to the American church when we are so full of affluence that there is no longer any affliction to be dealt with. You understand what I'm telling you? Go feed those bears. They forget how to hunt. Our king will lead us into the appropriate battle at the appropriate time. The encouragement for you is you were made to stand. And you can do it. It's not beyond you. Well, we move on from Exodus. Go ahead and uh, turn with me to Genesis 36. Just adopted, not even really having received the word. They were armed for the inevitable battle. They were not taken on the shortest road because we are not into short battles. We are in a battle of attrition with our enemy. He is a wearing enemy. You were born for spiritual contention with those who oppose God. Adam had the task of subduing the creation. And in Christ, we see the kingdom advance until His will is done on the earth in the same way it is obeyed in heaven. We must arm ourselves, saints. The way that you arm yourself is be joyful, be prayerful, be thankful, be standing, be contending as one man. Did you hear that in Philippians 1, 27, 28, as one man? Now this is a figure of speech in English. It means that we're all acting like a singular person. Do you catch the play on the word? Who is the singular person we should all be acting like? Jesus. Jesus. He never fell. He could look and say, the prince of this world is coming for me, but he has no hold on me. The world will learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what he has commanded me. That's John 14. 
He could look with confidence at the ultimate resistance and know that he was going to survive it. You know why? The appropriate resistance comes at the appropriate time for your strengthening. Don't give the devil more credit than he deserves. He is not capable of overwhelming you if you are in God's hands. He's only capable of opposing you. And the Bible says, stand firm, resist him, and he will do what? Is the Bible true or not? It is true. Did you turn to Genesis 36? Good, I'm not going to read it to you. I'm going to tell you about it, right? Because now you know where to find it. In Genesis 36, we have a man named Esau. And Esau is one of those unique guys in the Bible. He's of the people of God, but he doesn't act much like a person of God. You don't know anybody like that. Nobody who wears the name Christian, but doesn't act much like Christ. Nobody who attends church faithfully, but there is none of the teaching of the church found in their life. You've never seen those people, because we live in a very pious nation. If you don't recognize sarcasm, you're already getting familiar with it about now. Esau sold his birthright for fleshly desires. Esau was no more interested in the things of God than he was a bowl of lentils. How gross, right? Beans. He gave up the birthright of God for beans. But you know what else Esau did? He married women that grieved his father. Why would that grieve his father? Because they were Canaanite women. He was such a slave to his own fleshly desires that he did not even look for a woman of God to marry. He married women of foreign gods. And one of the children produced, Genesis 36 says, was Amalek. Amalek is an interesting character in the Bible. And people debate whether or not Amalek is the father of the Amalekites or whether he was simply named Amalek because the Amalekites were existent there. What difference does it make, right? I guess it gives them a chance to write books. You know what Amalek means? What the Amalekites means? Warlike. People who lick up. What a strange word. Hebrews are so graphic. They looked at cows eating and goats eating or a dog drinking. And they saw that motion and how it left the earth afterwards. <laughs> barren. Even roots pulled out of the ground. And so they said that the Amalekites were a warlike people who licked up the ground. Meaning everywhere they went, they devoured for their own consumption everything that they saw. They were warlike and they were also called valley dwellers. So depending on whether you look in New Ungers or you look in McClintock and Strong's or where you look, you'll see one of those three definitions or all three. Warlike valley dwellers who lick up the earth. It's an interesting thing because Jesus described the devil in John 10 as somebody who steals, somebody who kills, and somebody who destroys. A very Hebrew way to say that might be someone who licks up people's lives, a destroyer of men. What does he want to steal from you? If your job is to stay joyful, prayerful, if your job is to stay thankful, to stand in the faith and to contend, he wants to steal your joy. He wants to kill your prayerfulness, your connection with the king. He wants to destroy your purpose. And why were we all put here? to extend God's kingdom, to multiply His presence, to subdue the enemy. But He knows if He can take away your joy, if He can remove your prayerfulness, if He can destroy your purpose, then instead of being here to extend God's kingdom, you do something altogether different. Have you ever wondered why some sins seem so grievous? I mean, there are sins that when you mention, people don't just go, oh yeah, that's yucky. I mean, they literally revile there's a reason for that. We are made to look like God. What does it look like to the heavenlies then when two people who are in God's image do seriously unwholesome things? You understand how that is an even more grievous kind of thing? It's not as if, if an animal does something wrong, it's an animal. It doesn't look like God. It was just made by God. You look like God. You see why the devil is working so hard to meddle in the affairs of man? You ever wondered what a motive might be? I mean, why on earth mess with this guy? He's just in a garden. There's a whole earth out there. Well, because he looked like God, but he didn't seem to carry the same chutzpah God's got. He knocked him down, and it felt to him a little bit like he got a chance to knock God down. Why did God have a surprise for him? <laughs> That's kind of a rope-a-dope for the ages, because God dressed himself like a man that could not be knocked down, and the devil was caught red-handed. But that's another message. The Amalekites are warlike valley dwellers, and they're just like their father. They want to steal. 
to kill, and to destroy. The term lick up in Hebrew shows up all over the place, but maybe one of the most famous where the prophecy is given to Ahab or the prophecy is about Naboth's vineyard. And all of you being theologians, I know you know what that is, but this is when dogs licked up the blood. Did you ever hear that? What a sick, disgusting thing, right? Can you imagine that your memorial, your testimony to your time on the earth was that a dog licked your blood from the ground? Yeah. This is associated with the Amalekites. The word play is intentional. Wherever they go, they leave that same disgusting kind of feeling. There are nomadic people. This is an interesting thing. Because you read one commentary and it says the Amalekites are nomadic. And you think, okay, I got that. You know, they move all over the place. You read another commentary and it says they live in the Sinai Peninsula. How can you be both nomadic and live in the Sinai Peninsula? That makes about as much sense as the protests that are going on in New York, but that is a whole other thing, right? It's like being a refugee for about 75 years uh, in, in the Palestinian Authority. Listen, they occupied the Sinai Peninsula, which is, interestingly enough, right between the land God called his people to and the land he called them out of. And why were they nomadic? Stand up again, Gabe. Gabe, start to go over there. Over there. <laughs> they were nomadic because they were always between the people of God and the destination God called them to. Friends, there is an enemy who will oppose your every move. He is resistance. He's trying to destroy you. In fact, his name literally means opposition, accuser. And what he doesn't realize is God uses him like a rabid dog on his leash. His every bit of opposing you simply makes you stronger and more able to deal with him. What a frustrating thing. If you strike the church, the church grows. Yeah, You afflict the church and the church becomes more powerful. You take away a man's possessions and he becomes more rich in the faith. You afflict a man in this natural world and the Lord our God sees fit to pour more spiritual nature into him. How frustrating that must be. But I don't sympathize with him at all. The first to attack Israel in, as a nation. They come out of Egypt. It is Israel. They have come out of Egypt. They're following God's presence. And in Exodus 17, the very first group that ever attacks them is Amalek. We'll look at that more in a little bit. The first to attack God's people, the warlike valley dwellers who always position themselves between the people of God and their destination. You ever felt like any time you wanted to do something for the Lord, it was just like running in peanut butter or something? <laughs> I don't know, revival broke out and all kind of other stuff broke out too. That's normal. There's an enemy and he's positioning himself between our church and the purpose for which our church exists. You try to turn your family towards God to do the right thing. And of course all hell is going to break loose at your kitchen table. Of course your kids are going to start to have problems. Of course all those things. The devil is not going to give up easily, but he is going to give up eventually. You know, when I was in the security business, we never, never could make something an impenetrable fortress, right? Remington Steele would show up with his glass cutter. That's before most of you too. They would break it. Mission Impossible. There we go. Now, now I got an audience. <laughs> Mission Impossible always could find a way in. That was not the point. The point was to put up enough resistance to make them pick a different house. I want you to understand you will never stop the devil from opposing you. It's what he does. But you can put up enough of your own resistance that he will go look for an easier house. You understand what I'm telling you? The, the more thankful we are, the more prayerful, the more watchful we are, the less he has to work with. But you give him a seed of bitterness and he will defile many. They're the first to attack the nation of Israel. They did it because Israel was thirsty, Exodus 17. And they were grumbling and they were complaining. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19 says that God would never forgive Amalek. He would blot them out from under heaven for this. I need you to understand something. It doesn't matter how many popular authors write books about total reconciliation or universalism or any of those fancy theological words that say everybody's going to be saved in the end. It's not true. 
There is an enemy in opposition to the things of God that God will never be willing to forgive. There is no salvation. The actual fire that we call hell was created for the devil and his angels. There is no opportunity to get out of that. It will always be there. There is an eternal war that existed before you and will exist after you unless we're glorified in his presence. This is a struggle of life and death. But we go about our day and we don't notice. We need to always be fighting, always be moving, always contending with the enemy. Another thing that Amalek did that is quite interesting, they were the first group to attack Israel on their way out of Egypt. You know when else they attacked Israel? When they tried to enter the promised land. In Numbers 14, 43, they are the first nation to oppose Israel. When Israel was disobedient to God, they didn't want to go in. And Moses said, all right, you're going to get to roam in the desert for 40 years. They said, okay, I'm sorry, we'll go in. Amalek was right there and began to mow them down. See, Amalek is looking for something. He's looking for Christians who don't know who they are. He's looking for easy targets that are easy to lick up. He's looking for somebody who is not prayerful, not vigilant, not joyful, not taking their stand, but instead is vacillating all over the place, serving God on Monday and on Tuesday not so much, and on Wednesday trying a little bit, and on Thursday serving himself again. This is what he's looking for. You know, it reminded me of another scripture. Turn with me to 1 Peter. We'll come back to Exodus. Tell me when you're in 1 Peter. Y'all already know all there is to know about Amalek. Am I boring you? Nobody in here experiences spiritual warfare, huh? So I picked a topic that is completely foreign to you. In 1 Peter 5, look at verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion. Lion. Does the Bible say that he is a roaring lion? What does the word like indicate? That's a metaphor, a simile. It means that he is similar to that in some ways. Now, I heard one popular evangelist say he's really a chihuahua with a megaphone imitating a lion. And all of that may be true, but I just have to tell you, <laughs> there are days it doesn't feel that way, does it? Where would this righteous apostle Peter get an idea that the devil was like a roaring lion? Why don't you go ahead and turn to 2 Kings. I won't keep you there long, but I'll keep you there long enough to get what you need out of it. Is that fair? You'll be in 2 Kings. Let's turn to the 17th chapter. 2 Kings in the 17th chapter. And once you get to the 17th chapter, slide down until you find the 26th verse. There. 24th verse. The king of Assyria brought the people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord, so he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them which are killing them off because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order, Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel, which means the house of God, and taught them how to worship the Lord. Do you know what stopped? The lions stopped being able to devour the people. The lions were solely looking for those who did not know what the God of the land required. When the devil, your enemy, prowls about, what do you think he is looking for? Those that do not know how to fight. He is an opportunist. Do you remember that when he left Jesus and 
Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, he left him in a desert, left him after not eating for 40 days. He couldn't best Jesus then. And do you know what the scripture says? He left him for a more opportune time. The devil is an opportunist and what he is looking for is he will pass over the Christian that is full of joy. He will pass over the Christian that is full of thankfulness and he will go and dominate does the... not know what the God of the land requires but feels entitled to act however they want to act. They'll think they're doing a service to God when they split your church. They will think they're doing a service to God when they squelch the work of the Holy Spirit because they are entitled to do it. I want to tell you, friends, we never have the opportunity to disobey God's Word. We never have the option to say that verse does not apply to me. And what we began with was be joyful always. Pray continually. For this is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. So how many days can we let go by? How many hours can we let go by when we decide that does not apply to us now before a lion shows up and has flat out eaten your lunch and maybe your legs too? Do we wonder why sometimes we don't feel victorious? Well, there's no mystery. We don't do what the Word says. You know, it's not such an easy thing to feel happy though, is it? We'd like to reduce it to a series of chemical responses, wouldn't we? We would like to think of it simply as one big chemistry experiment. And yet, I can tell you that if you demand of your flesh that it become happy and you jump around and dance and force a smile upon your face, you will eventually get happy. I can tell you that. You know how I can tell you that? I do it. I did it tonight. Do you really think that there are people born in this world that want to get out of bed every day? Do you really think that there are people born in this world that have no problems and life is nice for them? We're all facing resistance. But some have decided the Word of God is not optional. And you know what? That's warfare. That's combat. That is a chance to advance the kingdom even when you don't feel like it. Mike used an example when he was preaching the other day. He, he preached about a man who gave away $5 and felt it from his heart. Our man that gave away $100 out of a sense of religious duty. The moral of the story was we want you all to feel it. But at the end of the day, we would rather you just do what is right, <laughs> whether you feel it or not. I would suggest to you that your emotions are exactly the same way. They will follow your leading if you force them to. The kingdom of God can be hindered simply because of a bad attitude. It really can Revival has broken out in our midst. Do we have a lot to be happy about? Yes. Have, you, have you heard healing testimonies? Yes. Yeah. Have you heard financial testimonies? Yeah. Have you seen people get born again and pray in other tongues that never did you think that would happen before? Yes. Yes. Of course. And yet, if you're like me, you can have a day like today where you just feel like crawling in a hole. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes it's okay just to say, no, <laughs> my flesh is not going to rule me. My mind, will, and emotions are not going to rule me. I have chosen the Word of God as my master. Yes. He is my Lord. We're going to find out he's a bad <coughs> in your head. You know those people that quote all God's names, right? And it's like a little special merit badge that they can do it. You know? yeah, they usually do it as Jehovah. Right, that's hard for me, so I'm not going to do it that way. But we would say, Yahweh Yireh, the Lord is my provider. Yahweh Nisei, the Lord is my banner. Uh, Yahweh Rapha, the Lord is the healer. All of those things, right? And you're like, good for you, right? I mean, it's exciting that they know that, but you want to know what does it do for you? Well, when you see the Lord as a banner over your life, a standard for your life, if you envision him ever before you and you're marching after him, friends, if you're not doing what he told you, you are not keeping him. Who did the lions eat? How uh, mm. oh, about that? He's looking for those who don't know. It's a Wednesday night. I probably not, ought to not preach all night. I want to tell you in the time of the judges, the left-handed assassin that I told you about, he dealt with the Amalekites. The left-handed assassin's name was Ehud. 
And the fat king that he got a chance to plunge a sword all the way through, so that the fat enveloped it. How cool is that? You'd be surprised what's in the Bible. His name was Eglon. And when they came to Ehud and they checked him like they frisked him, they forgot to check his right side. He was a left-handed man and he kept his sword on his right side, but that was not normal. Usually people kept their sword in the same place and used it with the other hand, the left thigh and the right hand. And so when they frisked him, they didn't see it. So Ehud goes to Eglon and says, hey, I got a word from God for you. And he shoves a sword all the way through this fat belly. And it says that the fat closed over the hilt of the sword. And then, young people, you'll love this. His guards didn't come and check on him because they said, I think he's in the bathroom. Then it says when they had waited in an embarrassing length of time, they went in to check on him. I don't know how long Eglon stayed in the bathroom, but after a while, somebody went to check on him. So why on earth could we be talking about that? We get used to handling the Word of God in a certain way, and it gets to be rote memorization. It gets to be something that is just kind of trite, like God's promises for every hour in your need. Well, what is it? I don't know. I have to consult the book, and it will tell me what I should think about the Word of God about that. You understand what I'm telling you? Somewhere we need to develop an authentic relationship with the Word that can use it with your right hand or your left because the enemy might approach from either side. We need to be more skilled with the Word of God. You know, it's an amazing thing. How many of you have read a Christian book this year? It's okay, you can raise your hand. How many of you have read the book of Leviticus this year? You feel me? You know, it could be that the Christian book is a great book. I hope it was. I mean, I hope you loved it. Chewed it up, spit it out. I thought it awesome, right? But, of course, the Leviticus, it is the Word of God, right? It's already proven. It's beyond contestation. It's already good. So why do we go to get the other book and we didn't read that book? We have fallen into these patterns. We kind of think, oh, well, I know what's in there. I'll move on to this and... And we're looking for scripture that suits our need. This is like a man who can only use it with one hand. I want to tell you that if the book of Leviticus was the only book you had, you'd see Jesus all over it. I want to tell you that if the book of Deuteronomy was all you had, it'd be the best book in the world. It'd still be a bestseller. But we are so spoiled with it that we don't even think we need to use it rightly. We move on from the time period of the judges and the left-handed assassin that killed the fat king dealing with the Amalekites. And later in the time period of the judges, we get to a man named Gideon. Do you remember where Gideon was when the angel of the Lord came and found him? He was hiding in a threshing floor. You know who he was hiding from? The Amalekites. See, they're always between you and what God called you to do, and they would like you to cower in fear. But what did that angel come and tell Gideon? Says, stand up, mighty warrior. Give her Hiel in Hebrew. Stand up, mighty warrior. Did he act like a mighty warrior? No, he act like a pansy, right? He's hiding in the threshing floor. Sometimes the word of God is there to remind you of who you are called yes. to be. Yes. It's not enough for you to know what other people say about it. You need to know what it says to you. It's great, Jay, that Eric will tell you something the word of God says. It's a whole lot better when God tells you himself. And when it does, it'll change your life. It'll make you go chase those people you were hiding from because you were born for a purpose. Isn't this what happened to Peter on the day of Pentecost? You were born to extend the rule of God. You were born to multiply His presence everywhere. You were born to subdue. Nowhere were you born to hide in a hole. Especially if it's a hole you dug for yourself called self-pity. In the time of the kings, we see the first king of Israel rise up in power, a great man of the tribe of Benjamin, Saul of Kish. You know why he lost the kingdom? He refused to put an Amalekite to death, Namekak. And the 13th chapter of Samuel, he has his heart changed into a different person. By the 15th chapter, he's already been corrupted. He's so scared of what will happen if he obeys God that he doesn't do it. And God said, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of your hands and I will give it to a man who will do what I want him to do. You know where David was at the time? He was in the Amalekite territory whipping up on the Amalekites. And whenever they stole something from him, he went after it and got it. And if they stole his women, his children, his cattle, not cattle, camels, that's what I was trying to say, he went after it and he got it. You know in 2 Samuel 8, what he was doing to the Amalekites? He laid them down in every third link of the cord. He put them to death. 
It's a little bit like saying, I can kill as many of you as I want. <laughs> Watch this. Dead. Live, live. Dead. <laughs> Dead. When the people of God are walking with God, the enemy is not really powerful. He's consistent. He's busy. He, he's pervasive. He'll attack you from every area. But the word is the word. It says, stand firm, resist him. And what will he do? Flee. So if you feel eaten up with the devil, you must not be resisting enough or he would be fleeing. The word is the word, friends. I would like to encourage you to get an infusion of joy. You know, where you get an infusion of joy, it starts with praise and worship. You begin to tell the Lord who he is and he will begin to tell you who you are. Yeah, how about that? When we turn to Exodus 17, we will try to finish this message. Second Samuel 8, 12. If you'd like to hear about David fighting those who had been taken captive, that would be 1 Samuel 31 through 6, and also 17 and 19. If you'd like to see him living behind enemy lines at Achish, but killing Amalekites, that would be 1 Samuel 27, 8 through 9. If you'd like to see Saul's failure, that would be 1 Samuel 15. If you'd like to see Saul's born-again experience, that's 1 Samuel 13. It's good to take notes. Are you all in Exodus 17? Yeah. Yes. In Exodus 17, I'd like to tell you the water had to come out of a rock because the people were whining and grumbling and complaining and they were at rest. So in verse 8 of chapter 17, it says, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. It's an interesting thing. The name Joshua in Hebrew is Hoshea. It is very, very similar. It means the same thing really as Yeshua. It means Yahweh's salvation. And the first time the word Hoshea or salvation appears in all of the Bible is right here. When did Jesus appear? When did Joshua appear? When did salvation appear? When the Amalekites showed up. And you know what he did? He chose men and he went to war. 1 John 3 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Did you know that? The reason he appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And you know what he did? He chose some men. He said, with you and you and you, we'll go with them. You want to go? The problem is, is most people say yes, but don't actually show up. Yeah. Everybody who wears the name Christian should be an Amalekite stomping machine. But instead, we've become the souls of the foot rather than uh, the one doing the stomping. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. We cannot both participate in the devil's work and destroy the devil's work. We've got to pick a side and get on. So Joshua showed up and he chose men. And he went to war with the Amalekites. Go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Moses on a hill, Joshua in a valley. Both participating in a battle. Both men had something to do. Joshua had to pick up a sword. What did Moses have to pick up? A standard, a staff, a righteous standard. The Amalekites, in some form or fashion, are opposing both men. Do you know how this story goes? When Moses had his arms up, what happened down in the battle? They were winning. They won. When Moses had his arms down, what happened down in the battle? They lost. Was something fighting against Moses' arms? His own flesh was, wasn't it? What do your arms tell you when you got to hold them out like this? How long would you? I had a teacher that made me hold books out like this one time. How long can you do that? How long before your flesh is screaming at you? But you don't work for your flesh. Your flesh works for you. You are a spirit. You have a mind, will, and emotions, a soul, and you live in a body. It works for you, and so do your emotions, and so do your will, and so does your mind. The part of you that lives forever and is commingled with God is your spirit. It is time for us to live a spiritual existence and force our mind, will, and emotions into what our spirit knows is right, and for those two to gang up on the flesh and make it 
your slave yes. by doing what you tell it to do. So Moses needed some help. Aaron and Hur got propped up on either side. Praise and nobility. And as long as his arms are up, Joshua is advancing in the valley. The Bible goes on to say Joshua triumphed with the sword and Moses held the standard up. Friends, this is a little bit like the corners of your mouth. You want to think about what it is to be victorious? You can have a smile. You can laugh in the face of your enemy because you know how big your God is no matter what happens. Cancer comes, you laugh at cancer because you serve a cancer-crushing God. Difficulty in your finances come, you laugh at them because the same God that delivered you from the paw of the lion and the bear will deliver you from this as well. This is where victory occurs for a Christian. It is an unconquerable joy. When Moses' hands went down like the frown on your face, they lost the battle. When his arms went up like a great big smile, a bowl that is receiving everything you can get from God, they won the battle. Could it really be that simple? Yeah. This is why the Bible says he anoints you with the oil of joy. And Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. This is not some kind of magic, friend. It is God created you so that he could flow through you in a certain way. And the way that he throws, flows through you is when you are full of his presence. You are full of thankfulness. You are taking your stand and he anoints you. It never depended upon your strength. Look at the end of Exodus 17 and see what Moses says about this. Verse, you see 13, so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Of course, it took Moses with the great big pictograph of a smile to do it. Look at verse 15. Moshe built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. Yahweh Nisei, the Lord is my banner. This is also standard. When we say banner, if you're like me, you think of a weird thing that happens in the vineyard church sometimes. They dance in with a banner, you know, and everybody says, Hail banner, full of... I'm kidding. Uh, it's just kind of one of those cultural things I never got. But... When we say banner, we mean one thing by it. In the ancient world, a banner was a standard that the army marched according to. Where's my division going? You could look out and see the standard, and you followed it. The Lord is my standard. As a closing word, one of the things that I would like to tell you is one of the problems that causes joy to escape us is when we begin to look at each other as the standard. Well, I'm at least as happy as Cody is. When you compare me to Tara, I'm doing all right. When Tara compares herself to Judah, she's, she's doing good. That is not the standard. Friends, have you ever heard anywhere in the, in the Word that the Lord had a bad day? Who are you called to be like? He's holy, and He called you to be holy. He set you apart for His use. When did you ever hear He had a bad day? Friends, it, it's even for the joy set before Him that He endured the cross, scorning its shame. The Bible in Hebrews 12 says we're surrounded by a cloud that compels us towards the same thing. Our Lord laughs at the enemies of God. Surely he can. Oh, by the way, anybody in here lose a limb for the gospel yet? Property confiscated. Beat up this week. Hmm? We've not begun to really hurt for the gospel in this country. Instead, we have imaginary enemies. We have imaginary, did you see the way they looked at me? I was going to witness in that job, but I felt so persecuted. Really? They hurt you? No. What did they do? Well, they kind of sort of insinuated that they might not like me as much. Christians around the world are enduring the burning of their houses. They're enduring incredible things. And you know what? I've met them, and they are so powerfully rich in the faith. They've run over the devil like you would run over grass. He's not stomping on them. And you know what? American missionaries go there and think that we pity them because they don't have what we have. And it's really us who doesn't have what they have. I'd like to tell you tonight that our king made you to be in constant motion with him. He's always moving. He wants you to be on the move with him. The reason I titled the message Retzev is because we're already in combat. You might as well decide to fight. Yeah. The best way you can fight starting now is to force a smile upon your face.
to force a thankful heart to grow inside of you, to take your stand on God's word and not give it up. We're all going to eat way too much turkey in about two weeks and we're going to call it Thanksgiving. Isn't it funny that America needs a holiday for Thanksgiving? Now, I'm not against it. I'm going to fry and eat more turkey than you can imagine. We won't preach on gluttony for at least a month. But, do we need a special day to celebrate Thanksgiving? Weren't we called to always be thankful? I'm suggesting the most victorious life you could possibly have occurs when we take that verse seriously. We do not have the right to be anything other than what the Word of God says. You'd like to close with a prayer and a worship song? That'd be okay. And look, this is not an endurance contest. It never has been. Our service is about to be closed. Matthew is going to come uh, lead us in a worship song. If you have a compulsion to get to an altar, you do that. If you have a compulsion to get home, you do that. We're going to have a compulsion to let the kids out of the children's church. But the reason that we're going to close in worship is because we want those that have their fill to be able to move on and those who still want more to be able to get it. And I'm not quite through yet. I'm through preaching, but I'm not through showing my thankfulness to the Lord. I'd like to worship a little bit. But I'm not going to look around and see if you do. Please don't let there be that kind of peer pressure. you got jobs. you got kids. you got all of those things. I'm just in a position where I can say, all of that can wait for me. I'm going to worship a little while. Amen. Okay, I love you. I thank you for being here tonight. It's not a service to God, but it's a service to me. And hopefully it equips you for your service to God. Amazing how you'll stand out in traffic tomorrow if you just smile. Do me a favor, look around, right? How many of you drive down 59 to go to work? Yeah. Just look around. Look and see if you can count people that are actually smiling while they're driving. If you can find 10 on the way to work, your commute's too long. Find a new job. <laughs>